Welcome to the Knock on Archery podcast, where we bring all archers and bow hunters together from all walks of life with the goal to educate, empower, and inspire you to be better both in the field and on the range. All right, everybody, welcome back to another Knock on podcast. I, I've got to do a turkey podcast. That's just part of the tradition, and I'm definitely going to do one with none other than my man, Mike Slinkard. How you doing, dude? Hey, John. Seems like it's a uh, so kind of getting to be a habit in the spring for us, isn't it? I know. Well, we normally do, too. We like we like to do a couple times a year, and, and uh, you're one of my favorites to talk to during equipment prep and setup time. So it's always, uh, it's always good. I've been doing it, too, the last couple days. I've been getting ready for tack and starting to get cameras out to scout some birds and and all that good stuff so did you just shoot one i just saw a picture of you with one did you no, that, no that was actually from last year i did a, i did a podcast with some guys out of texas and i needed something to throw up there to get attention so now we don't actually open here until the 15th of april um and if it doesn't start snowing i don't or quit snowing i'm not really sure when we're gonna get after it. it's still snowing like crazy here we've got just massive amounts of snow right now so so uh might be a little late start for us one of my favorite hunts was uh, I did a hunt with Antoine one time in South Dakota, um, and it was honestly all the birds were still just totally flocked up because there was snow on the ground, and you know we put up our blinds literally on top of the snow, and it was pretty cool. I mean, it was uh, to have nothing but snow and every single bird in the entire area was roosted in 100 yard radius they were like totally flocked up for their winter roosting pattern and it was like i don't know i felt like we were at a turkey zoo the amount of gobbles that were happening when there were that many turkeys that hadn't broke up yet they were all together and then honestly they just started falling out of the trees in front of the blind and uh i don't know it was fun to it was actually fun to shoot turkeys and have blood trails in the snow yeah well you know we we get snow quite a bit here last year we actually had snow several times during season and we had something similar but right off the bat last year uh my buddy andy day and i hunt together a lot and and uh, one of our favorite places we had uh not a lot of snow we had maybe an inch of snow on the ground or maybe a little less than that and uh, same kind of thing though i mean the, they were all together and i mean it was insanity um i actually killed a bird and then uh and then andy ended up missing one that morning but uh anyway no it's 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 cool it's it's fun to hunt in the snow i mean it's uh, well i should rephrase that <laughs> hunting like i hunt i don't know if it's fun to hunt in the snow but uh you know this year uh looks like they may be pushing uh they may be pushing snow in with their beards it's looking here though i mean it's pretty nuts <laughs> how is uh how is andy I forget, how old is that dude now uh, Andy is 62, I think. He just retired. <clears throat> so oh, now gosh. he's enjoying life. Yeah, he is. Uh, yeah, he's actually working on his own projects at home and hunting, bow hunting all over the place. So, yeah, no, he's doing good. That sounds perfect. Yeah, it is. Uh, he's living the life now for sure. <laughs> so. What, um, so out that way, 
Do you hunt them any different in the far northeast than in other areas? Because I know it seems like if I go to Montana and stuff like that, I mean, obviously the turkeys are still roosting where they're at, but they kind of, I don't know, it seems like they have a different demeanor than demeanor than they do specifically here in the Midwest, but especially to like the Southeast, the birds are just on like a whole different level of smart, in my opinion, or pressured, I should say, um, to where, you, you know, down there, you ha- your caution level has to be a 10 out of a 10. We're here in the Midwest. You're more of a, you know, probably a 6 out of 10, truthfully. Um, I mean, I can almost pattern birds here in the Midwest. Properties are smaller, and, you know, it seems like roosting areas are kind of seasonal. They're always like, they always prefer the same little areas, the way they break up, and, um I don't know. You can almost, I feel like I can pattern birds with trail cameras, um, here in the Midwest. And, you know, you're almost playing just the waiting game more so than running and gunning and, you know, like you do in other areas. Well, the biggest thing with birds out West is we have mountains. So they're basically migratory. So, you know, these birds, as the snow melts and they, you know, and they're also nesting higher than where they, than where they winter, they winter in the bottom of the valley. And, but most of those birds go up on the side of the mountains, you know, by the time breeding season and nesting season, they're up, you know, out of the valley quite a ways. And so they're really not, um, it's not like, you know, a lot of places, uh, you know, where you don't have the, the terrain and the weather like we have, you know, those birds will live there all the whole year, you know, and, and they, they travel around their area or whatever. But ours are, you know, more or less migratory. So they really haven't been, when, when you're calling them in the spring and they're, you know, and they're starting in the breeding season and, you know, we go all the way into May and it goes, and actually we kill a lot of birds in May, but, um, you know, they're not there all the time. And so they're, they're kind of in a transition mode and sometimes they'll be changing that. It's not like you can go to the same place every time and, and you know, they might be higher on the mountain, you know, two weeks from now than they, than they were to begin with. So, um, but invariably there are still, there's certain roost trees or certain ridges and, you know, just areas where, you know, you're going to, they're, they're going to go to those versus others that look just as good to me. I don't know why they don't go to those, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but you know, that's, that's just turkeys being turkeys, I guess. I know turkeys are funny that way. I was talking, uh, the other day I was talking to Joel Maxfield and he was down in Florida already and he was mm-hmm. kind of telling me about you know some turkeys he had come in and he's like you know they're freaking just running right in and then he said all of a sudden he's like you know he kind of like kind of did like a little button hook with the decoys and he's like I was expecting to just pop in front of the blind at 15 yards he said but he ended up hanging up to the side and and then next time I see him he's like 50 yards away just like going away and he's like and literally there was I think what happened was it sounded like Joel had, you know through his calling had called another hen in and the gobbler saw that hen and then just totally you know went full ADD which is so common with those things. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you've got a live hen and you're competing with her, you're going to lose. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Um, you know, I, we've actually done pretty good at actually getting hens to come in, you know, sometimes into the decoys, actually. And I've got, you know, a couple of them that have been very aggressive to the decoys and they'll drag a gobbler with them sometimes. 
But uh, for the most part, yeah, if you've got a live in and you're fighting with her, you're going to lose that battle 99.9% of the time, <laughs> and it's the way it is. But, uh, but, yeah, I mean, you know, the decoy setup, too, can make a, make a difference, I think. Um, you know, sometimes you have something that just looks a little off to them or whatever, and, and it's just enough to pull them around. I've, I get that especially late in the year more than, in, more than I do early. Uh, you know, late in the year when they're really kind of past their – peak breeding time anyway they're still kind of into it but uh yeah they can come in and, and get turned off pretty quick by a by a decoy at that point it's, especially like a full strut tom or something like that what's you know a lot of times super late i'll go what's that what's your go-to decoy setup i mean do you change it depending on how they've been reacting or is there one where you're just like i know I, I this do. one will work <clears throat> i i do um you know generally early on i'll start with the you know with like a breeding uh, Jake right on top of the hen and I'll usually have another you know Dave Smith hen right beside her standing up um, that one works really well early and then for whatever reason you know and, and like I said early when I'm, I'm talking early here in Oregon we're the 15th of April that through you know the end of April is what I use most of the time the first of May I'm going to go to that full strut gobbler um, and I've got to deal with a little string where I can make them move and turn and that kind of thing so you know a lot of, a lot of places out here are pretty open so they can see for a long way so that gets them to, to see the decoy first once they see it then it's you, you don't have to move it too much but um, I'll do that one and then again when it gets towards the end it seems like that that strutter gets a little bit I don't know whether they're just leery of it or they just I don't know what it is for sure but those birds aren't strutting there as much then either so maybe it's just I'm not natural but then I'll go back to that breeder again and uh, usually finish the finish the season with the breeder but uh, but yeah it, it's it's more about the you know the phase of if you want to call it the rut I guess if you want to use an elk term um, but it's more about that phase and I'm not sure what it is about early I think maybe there's a lot of breeding going on right the first part of the season and that's why they're reacting better to that breeding one um, and then like I said by first of May I'm usually you know I'm shifting to that full strutter and, and why I really can't tell you but there's definitely a difference uh, you know depending on the, the time of the uh, you know the part of the breeding season here yeah, there's definitely um, there's definitely a weird time where the strutter is just as soon as they see it, they are coming in hot and heavy, and they are on it. And then there's like another window of time where they see it and they are gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, and the other thing that it, the strutter does is I've called in a lot more hens to the strutter. And if you think about how turkeys work, that makes complete sense. You know, if there's a tur uh, if there's a hen that's that's you know receptive and she sees a strutting tom, that's what she's supposed to do. She's supposed to come to them. So I mean, I've had a couple of times when you know we've had hens come in and they they have a, a tom trailing behind her and they just drag them all in. I uh, had that happen one time last year and I actually ended up muffing the shot. <laughs> But uh, it, it came in from a completely unexpected way, and and uh, my range judging isn't as good as it used to be. But uh, anyway, I just shot under him. But you know what? It's it's it was still fun. But that's what happened. I had the strutter up, and they just came in, and uh, I, I believe the hen, the hen was actually coming into the strutter decoy. Um, you know, I, I that's what that's why they're strutting and there's a, to draw those hens to them. So you know, maybe that's part of the reason why it works well at that time of year too. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to say. I've always thought turkeys have the the uh, weirdest 
reactions and thought processes of most game animals. I mean, it, it's hard to predict any game animal, but it seems like turkeys and antelope seem to be wired the same. They're either they're either all in, all out, or they're all in to psych you out. Like they'll 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 <laughs> yeah. pretend like they're totally like there's no one else in the world but you, and then all of a sudden halfway there they just like forget what they were supposed to do that day, and then just you know frustrate the living crap out of you. Yeah. Well, the turkeys are probably one of the most frustrating things that I that I've ever hunted, honestly. And I've and like I said, I like hunting turkeys. Um, I love hunting elk. <laughs> so yeah. Um, because to to me, an elk makes a lot more sense. Um, I mean, you're dealing with a bird with a brain the size of an acorn. So you know, how much do they think? I don't know. Are they you know are they ADD and they just lose track of time? Who knows? But uh, like I said, they can be super frustrating. They're a ton of fun when they do what they're supposed to do but the problem is that's not the most of the time they're not going to do what they're supposed to do and you know that's one of the reasons why I've, I've really you know way back when when we were bow hunting we were all have to use blinds and you're pretty much just sitting there in one spot if it doesn't work it doesn't work and now if they're not doing what they're supposed to do guess what I grab my chair and we go after them and you know we set up again and and uh, you know I don't worry about getting a full draw or anything like that you know that's that's the hex advantage that we talk about all the time but um, but it really is I mean, it just gives a whole different, a whole different way of hunting them. I'm hunting them like a shotgun hunter would hunt them. If they're if they're not coming in, I'm going to circle around, and get in front of them, and you know, give them another try. And and it just makes it a lot more fun. It's more like elk hunting that way than uh, than um, you know than than just sitting in a blind and hoping that they you know react to your call and come to you. So it adds a different a different aspect to it. Yeah, well, people compare them to elk a lot, and it's they're definitely not. It's not like elk hunting. The only difference no, is not even vocal either. like an elk. Yeah. yeah, you're calling something that that talks back to you. That's the only the only thing that's the same with elk hunting and turkey hunting is that they they vocalize back to you like an elk does. Um, outside of that, no, there's no comparison. Not even a little bit. <laughs> you need to be doing. Uh, you need to be doing a snow hunt in your orange to one up yourself. Uh, you know, I may do that. Um, you know, I, I, I told everybody I was going to do the orange thing last year, and, and you know, I actually had the orange vest on several times, and, you know, we just didn't get the birds in. Um, and then when I did get them in, I wasn't wearing it. So I think this year I'm just going to commit to that right from day one, and I'm just going to, you know, go for it and just see what we can do. But, uh, you know, I, like I said, we done it with a shotgun. Uh, when I had my shoulder surgeon, I couldn't draw my bow, and I know I can do it with a bow. So uh, I think this year that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to commit to that right from day one. And, uh, you know, hey, it's going to work. I mean, there's no doubt about it. No doubt in my mind we're going to be able to kill birds that way. <laughs> but uh, it, it definitely does show the show what turkeys really see. Turkeys see that electrical field so well. And, you know, it's kind of new to a lot of people, but it's really not if you understand bird vision and what they know about how birds navigate and that they literally see electrical fields visually. Um, man, when you take that electrical field, it doesn't matter what you're wearing. It really doesn't. I mean, I like to, you know, get a little back cover so I'm not, like, sticking out like a sore thumb in the middle because they do pay attention a little bit to, you know, odd-looking things. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think I'm going to be able to do it just fine with that orange vest. Did, so did you just get back from uh, NWTF? 
Uh, we were at NWTF at the National Convention uh, middle of February. So we had basically had shows from the 1st of February all the way till I just finished my last one a uh, week before last. <clears throat> so as you can tell, my voice is a little scratchy still, and it always gets that way this time of year after talking nonstop for six weeks. But, uh, but yeah, now we do the NWTF every year, so it was our seventh time there. And, you know, like always, we killed it, and we sold a pile of suits. And the coolest thing about the shows is hearing all the stories stories and the videos and stuff that our that our customers share um it, it, it's just every year it just gets better so um I, i'm actually quite proud of that the fact that we're doing that show and sold so many suits there and we literally don't have anybody that comes up and tells us it doesn't work so um you know it's it's, it's kind of a cool feeling yeah i know um well it seems like there's there's much more people using hex than in the past um you know it seems like well i don't know how long has it been now is it 10 years oh we we launched in 2010 so you know we've been around a long time you know we've been around a long time yeah yeah i mean we've we've grown uh we've grown every single year um you know and and you know that that's really kind of a testament to the technology and you know i mean when we launched this thing man i'd have some pretty thick skin because you know i was called everything but uh <laughs> you know but he's under the sun pretty much but uh i have been um, too i have been too people, yeah people yeah, that see me hunting they're i mean because normally i take i'll like take like my outer layers off and stuff um like if i'm around camp you know i'll normally mm-hmm. have on whatever camo pants i'm wearing and i'm normally like in my hex shirt you know like walking around and and people will be like you really wear that all the time and i'm like all the time i mean it's a hundred percent part of my kit you know it's like yeah if if i lay everything out before i pack any time i go i lay out you know my core layer or my merino layer just depending on whether i'm wearing a synthetic or a wool then i put my hex on top which honestly i think i've had the same one i asked you for a new one like a couple months ago when we talked but i really didn't need it if i'm honest i've i've used the same set for like well I would say this this set I've had at least six years prior to the original one, but um, because I'm not wearing it next to my cl- next to my skin or as an outer layer, it doesn't get abused. Like it doesn't it doesn't really get a lot of wear. You know, it's kind of just the in between layer. Yeah. Well, the thing about you know the technology is that you know you're not going to wash it out. You know, you're really not. We tested up to 200 washings without any loss of, of effectiveness at all. <clears throat> but, I mean, I've got guys that bought their stuff in 2010 and still using those old original ones, um, you know, that was in, in the next camo way back in 2010. And they're still working just fine. I mean, the technology hasn't changed. And, it, and it's, like I said, it's very versatile. You can use it in a lot of places, but it also wears well, too. So, you know, that's, that's the thing. I, and it's, as, as a business, I mean, I almost wish they'd wear out a little faster be honest with you but uh you know but but you know it's good to have something that that people can trust and use for 
used for you know uh, a lot of years and and that kind of thing and of course we have a lot of new stuff now too that that's you know just nicer it still works the same way but like we came out with a really nice outerwear pant that we're real proud of um this last year um also we have our hoodie with a with an integrated face mask which is super popular so there's just different ways to get the same advantage but uh they, they last forever yeah those new pants are slick yeah, I, I wore, honestly, I went out shed hunting, and I wore, even though I'm shed hunting, I'm still, like, paranoid about, like, bumping game. You know, mm-hmm. it's, I think it's just bred into you as a hunter. You know, if, if, if you don't see something running off and it doesn't, like, make your kind of skin feel different, like, oh, crap, I blew this place out. <laughs> I, have, yeah. I have that feeling... No, I mean, I can be, like, on the side of a road trying to take a leak, and if I, like, slam my door and all of a sudden I see deer running, I'm like, crap, I just screwed up this spot. It's, like, it's like bread in me. So I wore I wore uh, that set just while I was shed hunting, if I'm honest, just, you know, because I'm trying not to run every single freaking place or uh, deer out of the place, you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Well, and too, I mean, you know, I mean, even if we're not actually actually hunting at the time, it's it's always good to keep you know the whole you know the your environment calmer, which Hex does that. And uh, you know, I mean, you you can still have some of those encounters even if it's not with a deer. I mean, you know, whether it's a you know a raccoon or a or a possum or whatever happens, you know, you you have those encounters when you're out, and they're just cool. You know, you don't as a hunter, well, you're not you know. We just like to be close to animals, and and this helps. You know that's the thing. But uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah. So, but uh, yeah, we've been around a while <laughs> at this point. Yeah. What um, have you put in for your elk tags yet? Um, I'm put in for a few of them. <laughs> um, you know, I here in Oregon, we went to a draw. Yeah. Did it? Yeah. I'm actually just going to apply for a point in, in Montana. I, I drew that uh, what year before last, so I, I'm just going to build a couple points in Montana. Um, I've got a really good chance in Utah this year, um, and of course we have to draw now in Oregon as well. So that's kind of a kind of a new new twist for us here. <laughs> and then, uh, what then did I change? also I haven't heard that. So well, do they have like oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they went to archery as 100% draw now, which was unneeded in my opinion, and I was actually part of that uh, conversation with the the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife during their meetings. Um, But... uh, you know the the they they were they were talking about you know crowding which there was some crowding and there's no doubt in some areas but uh but now yeah even residents have to draw the downside for non-residents is giant because you know Oregon has a 5% limit so no more than 5% of the tags in any one unit can actually be drawn by non-resident so um in some of the areas where I hunt it drastically changed it i mean you know cuz we had a lot of california particularly because we're the first basically the first timber you had if you come north from california so uh right here in our area it really affected it i i I, if i'm honest probably positively because there there was some overcrowding in some of those areas but uh but yeah that's the that's the 
kind of double-edged sword, I guess, for, for Oregon. They did move our season back a week, though, so now we don't even end until after the 1st of October, which is kind of cool. I mean, we'll get get a little more of the rut in, you know. So, How much have the, have the license numbers gone up since, uh, I mean, I'm going to say since probably COVID time, it seems like archery just really took a bump in the amount of people that wanted to try it, and you know, and that sort of thing, so. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, here, I, I kind of gauge everything off here because it's, I know it so well. But, you know, in our area, um, you know, the, 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 we were we were getting inundated by a lot of non-resident guys. And, and what they should have done, in my opinion, was to try to address that. They could have addressed that differently and let more non-residents actually able to hunt and still address the crowding problem instead of doing it like they did. The way they did it now, they basically knocked, you know, 95% of the non-residents right out of the pool. And so it's it's unfortunate um, for those guys. I, I know I got a lot of buddies that that you know apply in Oregon, and and uh, last year actually three of them actually drew, which I was shocked. But you know we also have a point system now, so that's probably not going to happen for a while now. It's going to take points to draw in Oregon now, probably. So because uh, last year was the first year, but uh, so yeah, it's like I said, it was it was a lot less people in the in, in the woods last year, um, you know, than than previous at least in some areas you know some of the ones that are historically you know kind of hit by those guys yeah did it change any um like did did you guys do any type of laws with like landowners being able to get guaranteed tags or anything like that or no there's there there are you know you can get damage tags landowner can get damage tags for antlerless um and here you know our mule deer population is so low now that that you know that's almost a non-issue at this point but we still have a lot of elk and uh, so landowners can get um, you know damage tags pretty easily and they're allotted a certain amount of of actual landowner tags but they divide those between all of the seasons so you know there's not like some allotted for archery and some for rifle and some for muzzleloader and all that they're all together so you know it's and then they don't allow, allow a lot of them I know the one place uh, that we hunt up here um, um, on some private that we that we uh, hunt up here, he's he's got over ten thousand acres. And he's allowed six um, LOP tag or actually landowner tags um, total six. Good grief! So, that doesn't even sound yeah. like it's balanced. I wonder if um, it's really not. I wonder if there it'll end up being like Iowa, where you know here in Iowa, there's all there's been a constant fight about people who are non-resident landowners that still are considered non-residents because they're not a resident but they're not allowed to have guaranteed tags for their own property so would that Mm, be the case now and you know if you owned land in oregon would you be in the 95 percentile or the five percent you'd be in the five percent for sure yeah it would be just like that if you were if you were uh, had residency out of state it doesn't matter whether you own ground or not i mean you could get you know your landowner tags you know you could get those because they're allotted by acreage and and things like that they also look at well, not all. See what they'll allow some antler hunting, but it's very limited. Uh, antlerless is pretty. You know, like I said, it's not hard to get damage tags. But, um, but uh, as far as the antler tags go, you know, like like I said, the place that we that we hunt up here, I think there's six on their ten thousand acres. They get six that can be either sex tags, bull, bull or cow. Um, but you know, they have to 
choose which season. So, you know, with these guys, they're all rifle hunters. So they, you know, they and do what they should be doing as landowners. They put it in for themselves and their family, and that's what they do. But uh, if you are out of state, um, yeah, you could still get your whatever the commission says that your acreage allows. And that also has to has to do with the, you know, with the bull cow ratio in that unit too. So if it's below objective, they cut those way back for even for landowners. So it's kind of a convoluted system to be honest with you. It's uh, yeah, but if you're as far as just drawing a tag, yeah, you'd be definitely you'd be in the five percentile if you were out of state, no matter how much land you own. I think that's how it should be. Um, you know, truthfully, and, and it, it protects the hunting. I think uh, you know. I th- otherwise, well, there's definitely people that could <laughs> buy awesome land in 50 states. You know, to have pre- preference on all that stuff. So I do think there's. Um, I do think there's a reason for a non-resident landowner to still fall within the non-resident. Yeah. I- I honestly do too, and 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 you know, being from a state that went from no restrictions whatsoever on non-resident hunting to now having very strict restrictions, I mean, there's there's good and bad to both. I mean, like I said, the the fact that there's less people in the woods definitely increases the you know the the hunting here as far as the you know the experience in the woods and that kind of thing. It, it, it worked wonders for that, but you know, like I said, at the same time, they kind of it's 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 like the pendulum swing swung from left to right all at once um there wasn't a, a middle ground so you know like i said it's i i believe that the residents should because we're paying the taxes and we're we're living here we should have the you know the first say uh, you know and we should have some advantage uh for that so i'm actually good with uh with a non-resident limit um what i I just think they went about it the wrong way because what it also did is it also uh, limited all the residents to only one unit. Um, here where I live, I'm right in the I'm right in the middle of three three conjoining units, right in the middle. So I mean, gosh, I've hunted all all three, and actually there's two or three more you know that aren't that far away that I've hunted my whole life. And now you know we got to pick one, and uh, you know so that's 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 the negative. So it kind of punished the residents. Um, they could they could have addressed the problem a lot differently i guess and 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 achieved a probably a better goal for all but you know what i i I talked until i was blue in the face at those meetings and and uh you know in oregon we're they just kind of do what they want it seems like so that's that's (laughs) what we're stuck with yeah (laughs) having to pick units as a resident would definitely be tough that'd be a tough call um, but you know, I moved to yeah. Iowa because because of the rules. That's why I live here. You know, I wanted to be yeah, able to hunt here every year, and so it was all in or all in or all out for five years. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. Well, and that, and that's what it takes. I mean, if that's if you're if you're a resident, you should get that. You should get that advantage, no doubt. So you know, so. But anyway, yeah, it, it changed our landscape here a little bit. Um, you know, I, I also put in from New Mexico every year, too, and I've got a, a buddy, Ralph Ramos, um, down there that's got some phenomenal elk hunting down there. Um, so we put in with him, and, uh, you know, he's an outfitter down there, so we get a little better chance to draw there. So maybe we'll get lucky and draw a tag there. And like I said, I, I've got a pretty good chance in Utah this year, so we'll just see what happens. I've got great elk hunting here in Oregon, and, and the one thing about it is they haven't limited the tags where there's much of a concern that we're not going to draw tag as resident so we'll get it we'll get a chase bulls one way or the other well yeah i've and i've been wanting to 
go there for a while. It, it sucks when you have to try to plan out your hunts, but put in in a bunch of different places. I mean, well, last year I thought it sucked because I drew, I got, you know, four tags. Um, and I was like, okay, well, this is going to suck because now I'm going to not be efficient at one of them. Um, luckily, that wasn't the case, but most likely that is going to be the case if you're, you know, if you're like put in for multiple areas and you draw multiple tags on the same year then you you start to have to do everything half-ass you know you're not able to to go all in in one spot and for elk elk is timing timing in place you know and those two things aren't always green you know aren't always a green light it's it's like you might have the right place but you don't have the right timing or you might have the right timing you don't have the right place like with elk you have to have the timing and the place otherwise they're just not there or somehow or another you know i've been in areas for example i I mule deer hunts areas where i know the elk density is insane but you know you're out there mule deer hunting barely can see an elk and you're thinking how is this possible i know there's hundreds of elk around but yet i can't you know the leaves are on the trees they're not talking they're staying in the shade or they're drinking and they're just ghosts yeah yeah well when when an elk's not not actively in the rut they're pretty tough they really are especially as bow hunter i mean that's why we hunt them that time of year because you know we can actually find them it gives us some kind of a chance to get close i mean i've hunted uh elk outside of the rut with a bow a couple of times they ain't a lot of fun <laughs> it's really not so um you know and you're right i mean the, the areas and timing but the thing is you know you draw a couple of tags like i'm facing that right now if i draw either utah or new mexico that's going to take me out of my my area here in oregon for a time um and you know especially the utah tag i'm going to be doing that on my own so you know i'm going to need to spend some time in the summer to scout it and summer scouting only tells you a very little bit because those elk are moving right before the rut and they usually change ground and so that makes it tough you know and and you know the utah or the new mexico thing is not as hard because you know i've got a buddy down there that's you know he's a guide and he knows the area well and and uh, there's 55 bulls for 100 cows in that unit so there's no lack of bulls for sure but still um you know it's i'm gonna have to burn some some time that i would uh, normally just be devoting to my place here in oregon so um it's a it's a conundrum i guess but it's just one of those things you have to do um that's one of the nice things about drawing a state like montana for me because montana actually goes till the middle of october and i've actually done pretty well killing bulls in october um you know historically depending on your it's after the rut yeah 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 it's after the rut and uh you know a lot of those bulls after the rut those bulls don't really want to be with anybody so a lot of times you know like two two years ago i killed a bull in montana the very first day and uh you know it was he, he, he we saw him um on the in the middle of the day we actually bumped him with the ranger and he dove off into a onto a north slope and uh and super thick but i mean when he did that and he was by himself i i, I 
was pretty positive we were going to be able to get into them, and we did. We just went in raking the, just used my raking horn all the way up, not bugling or anything. And when we got close enough, when we raked that horn, and that pissed him off, he stood up and started tearing up stuff, and I shot him at ten yards. So, um, you know, they're they, they, you got to call them a little differently than you do when they're actually running, but they're they're pretty, you know, they're pretty. Uh, they're pretty killable that time of year. They really are, you know, and up until about about October fifteenth, and then they start to become, you know, the, the, then they don't even react to that kind of stuff anymore. After a while, they'll just basically dive off in a hole and try to keep somebody from shooting them with a gun. But you know, <laughs> now did you were you able to use your levitate towards the end of the season last year? I can't remember. I shot my lav- uh, I shot my levitate everything last year. I shot uh, well. The first animal I killed with my levitate was Cape Buffalo in Africa, um, which was off the freaking chart. <laughs> that oh, that's one was right. yeah. That one was crazy. Um, you know, I, I, as people know, I, I'm I, I, if I can, I you know, especially for stuff like this, I like to push the envelope a bit. And for buffalo, um, you know, we had we were hunting water. And, of course, they had blinds set up, but I like to be outside the blind. And this buffalo, we actually, um, was, I was actually out in Plains game originally, and this with this big Doug boy came in um, while I was set up with my Plains game set up. And... Uh, because they didn't expect there to be a buffalo there, and he basically was the only one there, him and a, and a juvenile. But he was—they uh, they figured he was 14 years old. Um, you know, that's about how old he was. So he was old. He was kicked out of the herd. Had a really bad attitude. And uh, so I was actually hunting him outside the blind, just setting with my PH and my camera guy, just in some trees, you know, alongside the alongside the water hole. And uh, so, like I said, the next day we returned, set up for buffalo. That's how we set up, or out in the open, and uh, well, in some trees, but you know, no, no blind or anything like that. And uh, lo and behold, this buffalo comes in about two hours before dark, and everything's looking good. And all of a sudden, I felt that wind hit me on the back of the neck, and his head comes up, and I'm thinking, oh, it's over. He's going to run. But he didn't. He came hunting us at that point. Um, <laughs> so he throws his head up and comes trotting around, gets directly downwind and comes right to us. And he's like 19 yards, 15 yards, you know. And, uh, you know, but he's straight head on, and I don't want to take that head on shot on a buffalo. I just don't want to do that. So I'm thinking, all right, he'll turn broadside. Well, we, he basically hunted us for two hours and to make a really long story short um and the the more he 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 looked at us but you could tell he he wasn't really seeing us um at first and then as it went on he finally got in and actually my camera guy made a little little bit of a noise and he really keyed in on us at that point and then i mean it was it was intense because he would run out and he would just I mean, slam a tree as hard as he could and look at us, and then he would freaking run up to us and and stop at twenty yards. I mean, my pH was I'm I'm surprised he didn't have to shoot him. Honestly, I thought he was going to charge us, and my pH was going to have to shoot him. But anyway, this went on for this went on for for two hours until it got dark, and never giving me a broadside shot. He would come in, but then he would whirl and run back out to like sixty yards, which is longer than I wanted to shoot with those heavy arrows and everything. So anyhow. Uh, Long story short, the, they came in and actually picked us up at dark. Um, the buffalo was still there. 
Uh, they basically used the truck to block us so we could get in the truck and leave without the with, without getting killed. So um, when we got back to camp, I mean, the PH is going. I have never done anything like that before ever. Um, he said, "I." He said, "I've never been hunted by a buffalo like that ever." You know, and it was it was pretty crazy. And and uh, so they they put together this big plan for the next day of how we were going to. They were going to put a, a, a you know set up kind of a, almost a decoy with some clothes and stuff. So the buffalo would actually smell that first when he came in and hopefully go to that and give me a broadside shot. Well, this would have worked great, except for there was a rainstorm came in about halfway through our sat and started the wind started blowing all over the place, mostly directly behind us, which was just like impenetrable thick brush. And so, I mean, we already knew that the buffalo was going to circle in. If he caught the wind, he was going to come in on the scent trail. So it got super dangerous. And, and uh, finally, I just made the call. I said, look, we're going to have to get in the blind. And ended up that the bull did come in finally right at dark. And I was able to shoot him out of the blind, which is sort of a disappointment to me, which is stupid to say on a Cape Buffalo because Cape Buffalo is an amazing animal and they're freaking crazy tough and they're crazy huge. But, uh, you know, I wish I would have been able to get him, got him, you know, out in the open before. However, um, the, re- the PH did tell me, because I asked him when we were, when that bull was hunting us, when he was out one time, I said, is that bull going to charge when I shoot him? And his response was, you just shoot him right and let me deal with it. That was his <laughs> response. So I took that as a hard yes. Yeah, so yeah. I don't know, maybe it Maybe it was a blessing that I didn't get an arrow in the night before, but I tell you what, it was an adrenaline dump. Like, oh my God, it was nuts. It just was so intense because his demeanor was unmistakable. And, you know, it was, I, I'm still surprised he didn't charge us at one time or another. But uh, anyway, it all worked out good. And the Levitate worked good, of course. And, uh, but yeah, uh, I shot a great bull with my Levitate uh, last year, too. And so uh, shot a couple deer and stuff like that. So, yeah, had a pretty good year. What's your arrow like? Remind me. So I normally shoot 455 grains in just my regular everyday setup. Um, yeah, I was shooting. I think 555. I believe was um, was my uh, was my uh, buffalo arrow, um, which is lighter than a lot of people probably would say to use. But um, I have a buddy of mine, Rick Valdez, that lives out in in uh, you know Rick, don't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, lives out in Salt Lake. Um, you know, he's he's built arrows for everybody for dangerous game. I mean, he built them for Pete Shapley. He's built them for, you know, a lot of different people that I know. So I just went to Rick and said, Rick, what do I need? And, and uh, so that's what he put he put together. The, the was a, I actually used a, a Victory Extortion Arrow, uh, which has got a, a steel, you know, steel insert in the middle. Um, I used, uh, he had ti- some titanium outserts that we used on those. And then a, a head a two-blade head called a Hungor, which is a solid stainless, you know, two-blade head, and, and, and it did work magic on it, and um, the same, same exact setup I had, uh, my my son-in-law's father went to, and he shot a Cape Buffalo with the same exact setup, and yeah, it, it just, it was pretty devastating, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's what I was shooting. It's, uh, it seems like such a freaking loaded question right now, doesn't it, this whole... You know, the whole uh, FOC thing just seems yeah. like such you a know, I, question. <laughs> you know, FOC is uh, three letters as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> That's about <laughs> all I give it. Honestly, my my FOC on my regular hunting arrows is probably 5%, honestly. And they've been that way forever. And they shoot fabulously, and they do 
done great damage. I mean, that's the same arrow I shot my my brown bear with in in twenty twenty or twenty twenty one. You know, same exact setup as I shoot for elk and everything else. Um, you know, I, I just like I said, I don't. Uh, it, to, to me, it sort of defies the laws of physics a little bit. And then in archery, if you defy the laws of physics, you're probably going the wrong direction. Yeah, well, you know, I did, uh, I actually did a video today just talking about Sharon's setup a little bit because I get asked all the time about Sharon's setup. And what's funny is I never knew what it really was because I've never, I never built her arrow according to weight. I literally built her arrow based on how it grouped and also an arrow that got decent speed to where she could, she could get sight clearance, you know, to practice at some longer range if she wanted to. Um, but also something to where, if 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 an arrow is too slow for someone who's already shooting a short draw length or lower poundage if that arrow is already slow if you make it even slower it gets to the point where a rangefinder i mean you're literally needing to be within 2 yards all the time otherwise it's hard to it's hard to even argue that it's an ethical shot when your arrow has the potential to completely drop out of the kill radius anyway because of just because of the ballistics of the arrow but her arrow i thought was i think her arrow was like 350 grains and but i but what i said with that was you know we we've always had a rule like we've always had boundaries in place for what her limitations are with equipment so you know anything that's considered large game is a 20 yard shot and it's got to be for sure broadside but preferably quartering away and a cut on impact head like a like a montac you know at times for medium game I've let her use uh, tro- muzzy trocars, but for like wildebeest or, you know, anything to the size of an elk, um, kudu even, I mean, she shot a lot of big stuff. She shot gators, but she's she shot that same thing, 40 pounds, with an arrow that's, you know, 350 grains, and with her spot hog, her top pin is 20 yards, and her second pin is only 30 and so she's we've kind of allowed for a 30 yard shot on whitetails but for the most part it's you know we just we don't take long shots it's short shots you know and even even her bear you know her bear was one of the biggest shot by a female at the time in alberta um that thing was the same i mean she zipped right through that sucker but it was a 20 yard quarter and away shot is what we waited for and you know everything was totally fine for an arrow you know with a compound bow at 40 pounds even at 26 inches of draw with that arrow it's still getting better performance than what a lot of the recurves did back in the 80s Oh, for sure, for sure, and you know, I mean, even, I mean, I would argue that that forty pound bow is getting better performance than than our 
60 pound bows were back in you know the early 90s even maybe yeah. you know i mean it's because because they're so much more efficient and you know and you know the other thing that back in the day we were shooting aluminum arrows we had a lot of flax and and that kind of thing these carbons that don't have the flax you know they're driving straight behind that broadhead straight behind it and so you know i mean just again the laws of physics are going to tell you that's going to penetrate better and obviously putting a head on the front that that uh you know is made to cut and penetrate rather than you know i mean uh, rather than to uh, you know cut a huge hole or whatever you know that's going to make a difference too so um so yeah i mean it, it, there's no doubt i mean it, and it's like anything shot placement is key and you've got to know the limitations of your equipment and and that's just kind of the the way it is you know it's but like i said the bows are are so much more efficient now than they were you know 15 or 20 years ago it's just it's just night and day really is it's just our equipment's gotten so much better and uh the other thing is if you start weighting that arrow up like you said i mean your range estimation has got to be you know you you've got to know your yardage and you know the animal takes two steps and all of a sudden guess what you don't know your yardage anymore (laughs) you know and and you're guessing and that's i I got to where i really don't like guessing anymore very much i usually don't do it very well so uh you know why why make more guesswork in it it's just and you know the other thing because when i was going through this whole thing with my with my buffalo arrows and stuff i was only like four feet or i'm uh four foot pounds more in kinetic energy with my heavy arrows than I was my light ones. And to be honest with you, in my mind, it's like, you know what? I, I don't really know that that's going to make that much difference. However, the arrow was extremely stiff, and, you know, the, the, the Rick puts a lot of, uh, <laughs> puts a lot of, uh, a lot of weight behind the, you know, having that, that, especially that outsert part not flexing. Because on a buffalo, you've got to bust, you know, you've got to bust through ribs regardless because they overlap. So uh, that was part of the, you know, the outside of weight was just the integrity of the arrow and, and making sure that it didn't flex when it hit. But, uh, uh, yeah, uh, it's, it, it makes you wonder a little bit. Uh, you know, I, in, in a way, I wished I would have, honestly, I wished I would have had one of my regular arrows with the same head on it after the buffalo was dead and just shot him with that to see what it would do. <laughs> Probably be the only chance I'd ever had to test that. But, uh, I'm, yeah. Well, I'm not a, uh, I mean, I, I haven't shot a Cape Buffalo, so I can't speak on the cape buffalo side of the house but i've shot a lot of everything up to that i mean honestly i think if you take out a cape buffalo an elephant and a hippo um i've shot anything else and i've always taken my traditional type setups i mean my my arrows are over 500 grains i think they're around 540 grains um but I have this like weird, I have this weird thought process that is so different, I guess, than what everyone is arguing about right now. You know, it just seems like, it seems like pass through is such an important topic on whether or not your bow hunt is a success. And I just totally disagree with that. You know, I can tell you that when you zip through something the likelihood of that animal covering a lot more ground before it stalls it's just it's way higher and the amount of people in recent years that i've been in camps with 
that I've gone on track jobs with people that have used an extreme FOC arrow with a, you know, a cut on impact single bevel style head, you know, that's got a relatively small cut comparatively. Um, the amount of like follow-up shots I've had to see with that and the amount of like, even though there's two holes, the holes are smaller. They seem to clog up a little bit more and just a little bit more struggle on the blood trail or the need for follow like multiple follow-up shots honestly and i had this discussion with with some guides at an outfitter where they were like listen you know these small heads yeah people are passing right through and we're having trouble finding the arrows but they're like that's not the only thing we're having trouble finding see with me i like a big freaking cut i like a big cut and if i can make it to the other side of the internal side of the carcass i'm like happy and the one thing i notice is when you stuff an arrow in something and it's hanging out that animal might peel out of there fast but they also are going to take a stop to figure out what the heck is stabbed in them and ripping apart every time that they're continue to make steps and i've had more animals go less distance because they've got this freaking big cutting head still in them and the arrow like hanging out it just seems like that's that makes them want to freaking stop and like lay down you know it's it seems like it's causing more trauma you know in regards to devastation yeah so i'm i'm not disagreeing with that at all actually um i'm i'm sort of in the middle between the two so to me my perfect arrow shot number one outside of a cape buffalo i haven't shot anything with a two-bladed head in (laughs) 30 years probably maybe longer than that um, because to me, a, a two-bladed head, number one, it's it's more likely to close back up, especially if it zips through, like you're saying. And a lot of these, you know, high FOC, you know, small cut-on contact, you're right, right, they don't make a hole. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they really do need to make a, you need to you need to make that big hole. You've got to do damage on the way through. <clears throat> and that's one of the reasons, I mean, I shoot a three-blade, you know, you know me, I've shot my, my shuttle T-heads forever, and they're an old head. They've been around forever, but I know to sharpen them and they still cut a gigantic hole and just like the bull that i shot this last year you know he was 70 yards he was out there poke but it was the only shot i was going to get he was a giant bull it's actually the best bull i've taken to date um you know out of 49 it was my very best bull but uh i shot him i did hit him a little bit back from where i wanted but the arrow buried to the fletch and came out the other side but stayed in him and i mean there was it was gushing blood on both sides went actually right through the liver and uh, but there was gushing blood on both sides and i mean he went 100 yards it was you know i mean you couldn't have killed him any deader with a rifle really even though my shot placement was not where i wanted it um 
So I see to me that's the perfect scenario is that the arrow's still in them but two holes anyway, you know. And but the big thing is you've got to do damage on the way through. <clears throat> you know, you just have to. And those little you know, two blade head, number one, if you stick a knife in something and pull it back out, it's a lot more likely that that knife hole's gonna seal up than it is if you stuck, like I said, a three blade broadhead three that opens things up. That's not something that's gonna seal up as easy. So that's kind of my my place on, you know, with broadheads. You know, and of course, you know, expandable, expandable heads were illegal here in Oregon for a long time, so I really never never tried them very much in, in that. And I know, gosh, guys have great, great luck with them, but, uh, you know, I've got a relatively short draw length, so I, I still like to go with the, with the something that I know is going to cut a big hole. And, and uh, you know, like I said, if, it'll, if the arrow stays in them, but you still got two holes, to me, that's a perfect scenario, a completely perfect scenario. The other thing is, the arrow's in the, in the hole, so it's not going to seal up. So, yeah. um, well, so I have, um, I honestly like, uh, well, I shouldn't say I like two blades. I like a big freaking cutting two blade. Um, because I, if the hole's big enough, it doesn't close up, you know, and if, and if the hole's big enough, especially, you know, when it, when it goes in and that animal's starting to move, it tears and becomes bigger. But so one of the one of the things that I brought up on this subject, because I was actually I was with a doctor on a hunt and he was making the comment of, um, you know, hey, you know, what do you think about having an arrow that's that's staying in there where the arrow's still staying in? You know, how do you feel about that? And I said, I said, well here here's how i feel about it i said i feel like and and this was specific to single lung shots which honestly i think i think the most common shot is a single lung liver that's probably what i've seen most because i think i think a lot of people aim further back you know mentally we always tell ourselves behind the shoulder, behind the shoulder. And on some animals, the shoulder is problematic no matter what you're shooting. Now, certainly a super high FOC single bevel is going to be the best option through that exact scenario, which if you look at the total size of the animal, what is that? 5% or less is what you're aiming at. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to be aiming there anyway. Yeah, you're talking about 5% of the total mass. And I'm not going to disagree that it wouldn't be better in that situation. However, I feel like the most times when people say, hey, can you watch this shot and give me your opinion on what I should do for tracking? The amount of times that it's slightly back and I say, yeah, it kind of looks like one long liver. Um, I just feel like that is common because I think a lot of people aim behind the shoulder. Are, do you agree yep. with that? Like one long liver seems. Yeah, I mean you see that a lot, and, it's, and you know, too, if you've got any angle on them at all, you're even more likely to get that. Um, you know, if they're angled away or to you, for that matter, either one. You know, you're more likely to get that. You know, where you where you get one lung that goes back through the diaphragm and hits the liver. Um, very common. Yeah, absolutely. And like I say, people are a lot of people. I think are afraid of the shoulder, so they they tend to aim back further than they need to. Um, you know, that, that's my opinion, I guess. Okay. Well, if you think of that now, think of 
the amount of times where let's say with a large cutting expandable penetration might be le- you know could be less so if i have a one lung liver or a single lung impact but the arrow stays in if you think of like a medical injury right if you have if you have a single hole punctured lung where it's literally the pressure in the diaphragm is causing the working lung to collapse right it's a sucking chest wound is what it is what do you have to do in order to save that person like if it was in an ER what would you have to do to save that person that has a a single lung you know chest wound with a cavity I mean you have to do you have to pop a hole in there right you have to give you have to give another hole for the pressure to escape so if you're always passing through if you're passing through and popping two holes but with a single lung well on an elk on a moose that's a single lung elk or moose kill on a large game animal is not fatal within a day. I mean, no, it's not. It's not. But, um, and but I can it, give you a great example of this, actually. And and this is going to be kind of counterintuitive to this conversation a bit. But um, and and you know, like I said, the the other part of the equation with the, with the mechanical is having enough power behind it to make it sure that it does drive as far in as it can go. Okay. So I mean, John, you've got a you've got an advantage over a lot of guys because you've got that big long draw length, and that's going to make that arrow have a ton of power behind it. Um, but I have a I had a guy with me uh, here two years ago and um, you know we had a, a nice 5 by 6 bull come in he shot it was with the mechanical um, shot it it dead broadside <laughs> looked like the bull should have went 10 yards and fell over uh, but he only got one lung just one but the arrow broke off as soon as he, as he went back the arrow broke off you know because the shoulder came back broke the arrow off and so the, the front of the arrow was in it the bull went and 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 stopped you know about i don't know 100 yards out and so we're just sitting there watching him and you know i'm thinking oh crap he's going to fall over any time and he didn't and he didn't and he finally walked out of sight so we were actually in a blind so i got out of the blind where i could kind of see where he went well as soon as i got out of the blind the bull threw his head up and freaking ran over the hill full tilt Um, i'm thinking oh my god so we ended up finding that bull but and and he was actually dead the next day the next morning but he wasn't even stiff yet he he he, it took him all night and so you know like i said i mean that's kind of counterintuitive to what we're talking about a little bit but that is that's what a that's what a single lung does the single lung won't something as big as an elk it'll kill him but it's not going to be fast you know and the blood trail is non-existent by the way we don't have any blood to ball (laughs) which surprised even me um but uh anyway it's just a like i said just a personal experience that i've had um but again he was shooting a light bow he was shooting like 55 pounds and and you know it's like a 27 inch drawing so there just wasn't a lot of a lot of power behind that head or behind that behind that arrow when it hit and then it just didn't have enough power to to you know to open that that because he was shooting a big mechanical he didn't have enough enough power behind it to get that open and get the penetration that he needed so 
you know, I, like I said, everything's a little bit different. It really is. But uh, like I said, I, I, not to argue with you, it's just a just a different different experience, I guess. Um, but I like in the in the case of a single lung liver hit. So you've got two things going for you there. So the more damage that you can do after it goes through that lung and, and, and breaks the diaphragm, right? So that's the other big thing. When you kind of hold that diaphragm, that's going to make the animal very sick, very weak, very quick. So if you, But if you've got a single lung and a liver, the tracking job might be might be a little longer than you like, but you're probably going to find it most of the time. If you do enough damage, you're exactly right. If you shoot a little tiny head and you, and you shoot that shot, you may not do the damage. You're probably still going to kill it, but you're going to have a hell of a time finding it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you definitely have to think about what your bow is capable of. Um, you know, it's just like with Sharon. You know, I'd, I'd never let her shoot a mechanical at her mm-hmm. poundage. It's just, it's like... It's just not even it's it's not like even an option you know it's just it's a non-existent option but i think with um i think with at least with that with the the average person that's you know 29 or longer for draw length you know if you're gonna have a single a single long kill um you you want as much damage in there as possible and if you don't cut the diaphragm and it's only in the front cavity and it's a yeah. single lung or or I've seen single liver shots and and I've never figured out with the liver why some liver shots are like fatal within minutes and some are fatal at, over a day like you know mm-hmm. it seems like livers can a, 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 a strict liver shot with no diaphragm puncturing can does like has a very weird time clock to it and i don't know if there's a way you know medically where a doctor could be like well if it's higher in the liver it's this is why if it's lower in the liver this is why but i do know for those two scenarios if there's an arrow that is still in the cavity um, even if it is a mechanical, but there's there's blades in there, and that arrow is lodged back there, that animal mm-hmm. just hunches up and wants to lay down faster. And at that point, yeah. Yeah. if you have patience, you have your animal. Yeah, if you yeah have that's a, the key. If you have a zip through and no patience... I mean, you, it's it's likely that you're going to have to go a lot of distance to finally find where it beds, and if you bump it out of that first bed, man, are the man to the you're done. the percentages you're done. go <laughs> you way know. down. I mean, you exactly. might find it exactly. with a grid search, but the likelihood of you recovering it w- and still have the ability to consume it are just. It's such a small Yeah, they're not going to happen very often. I mean, and this is based yeah. off... You know, the hard thing is so many people listen to people that have opinions on this but aren't based on either experience of numbers of kills, like, you know, f- for me or for you or for someone like Joel Maxfield or, or a, a Randy Ulmer or a Darren Collins... 
Um, honestly, like a Michael Waddell or a Nick Munt, like guys that that have a lot of volume in regards to experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you sh- and and guides. Honestly, if if you know guides that have worked at a with an outfitter for a long period of time, and especially an outfitter where the main management utilizes those guides to help each other for tracking to where you know think about it it's bow hunting isn't a hundred percent you know if you look at like bow hunting odds it's i would say more than likely on average it's probably more in the 30 percentile for success rate wouldn't you think like if you thought of oh yeah whitetail hunters going to like a good whitetail spot or even going into a good elk spot um if you think a 30 percentile it's not only it's not like a hundred percent recovery rate but only three out of ten are shooting a lot of times half of your shot opportunities have unfortunately fallen you know into the negative side of it wasn't a lethal hit or it was a marginal hit and required tracking or they bumped it or you know they couldn't find it and the person ended up you know has to recover it later in the year when they find it and it's already been eaten or whatever but all of those situations those are all experience situations and when you listen to guides and when they talk about what they like and don't like about equipment i mean honestly I personally feel like what I'm shooting is beating the odds of average. You know, I feel like I've got an arrow that's going fast enough to where if that animal takes one or two steps when I try to stop it, I'm not having to completely recalibrate my distance, you know, rearrange and reset my sight. I'm able to be like, okay, well, you know, you're talking inches max. Yeah, on yeah, on exactly. various variations here, not not a lot. So today, honestly, today I did another uh, test that I'm going to be posting a video on. So uh, we've got a new arrow coming that's going to be kind of in a better pricing uh, category. So I took um, I took an, an a shaft that I've always liked from Easton. Um, it was originally based on the hex shaft but now has mm-hmm. a slightly thicker wall than the original hex did just so it has a little durability but it's a six millimeter arrow that was based off their sonic shaft which i liked because it was a more robust mm-hmm. hex but right. what i love about it is i've actually got 75 grain brass inserts made for these so um because i'm because i'm able to put two or 75 grains in the front um i'll need a slightly stiffer spine than what i normally shoot i normally shoot a 300 spine arrow but i can since i'm going up to a total of 175 grains in the front I can go to a 250 spine, which most people would need to do to follow me. But what's awesome is this 250, it's going to be called a Sonic KE. And the reason it's called Mm -hmm. a KE is because with this, you know, and I'm basing this on people using 100 grain heads. With 175 grains total in the front of this arrow, my my particular arrow is... um, 
it is 29 inches or 29 and a quarter inches but this 250 <laughs> spine with 75 grains of brass in the front and a hundred grain head is actually only it's nine grains less than my axis 300 is with only 50 grains of brass in the front so because mm -hmm. i've got more in the front my foc is actually 20 percent higher which it will definitely help in the wind and it'll definitely help a little bit with with driving force but it's definitely going to be better in the wind okay yeah see that's where foc actually makes a difference in my opinion exactly. i mean yeah, foc 100%. makes a big difference in the wind the rest of it not only it matters but in the wind you're exactly right foc is 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 better in, in stiff wind there's no doubt about that yeah and i mean this and this is stuff to where um I, ha I had this conversation with uh, with Joel too because we were we were talking about people who feel like they have to be over twenty percent for FOC. This 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 is not honestly only from an accuracy point of view. Let's only talk about accuracy. I feel like we have an obligation to go to the field with the most accurate setups we possibly can. Oh, absolutely. I can tell you right now, I've. I've sh I know that I've shot more at 90 meters than 90% of the archery population. Now, if you look at someone like Brady Ellison, he's probably mm -hmm. shot 90% more than me at that distance. And sure. I can tell you right now, Brady is not going to go to the Olympics or to World Cups with an arrow that isn't the absolute most awesome shooting arrow he's ever put together or ever built to go Absolutely. to the Olympics. Nor has any Olympian. And guess what? <laughs> they do not shoot extreme FOC. There's a point nope. of diminishing return for accuracy downrange. And I've tried it. I've taken my X10s. I've taken my Pro Tours. I've taken ACEs. I've taken Pro Fields. I've taken Pro Comps. And I've tried using extreme foc on those arrows and there is diminishing accuracy downrange on the target and yep, no 100 percent. so you know when you look at what i found the most awesome grouping arrow to ever be for me was 125 grains in the front of an x10 you know, with with mm -hmm. very light back end, and my FOC was around fifteen percent, and th and mm -hmm. honestly, it's hard to say. I don't think I could build a more accurate arrow because I've seen that setup out of my shooting machine just shoot eleven out of twelve X's at ninety meters. Like it was yeah. so freaking impressive. But there comes a point where extreme FOC, the group start, you start to get a horizontal impact line. And I called it the yep. hill, hill method. I wrote about it long, long ago. Um, and I, I talked about how to actually establish the most accurate bow that your bow is capable of being by reading the hill method. I refer to it as the hill method. I made that name up because... It's, it represents the horizontal impact line. And mm -hmm. that horizontal impact line is 100% affected by how heavy of the front of that arrow is versus the back. And for me, extreme FOC was never the case. So 
just from an accuracy point of view, there is a middle ground, which I think me and you are at, and I think I honestly mm-hmm. I think Joel's at too, that is not only accurate, but it is adequate for killing animals. So this arrow that I've got, this this new Sonic KE that's coming, like I said, I can do I can shoot a 250 spine arrow which allows me to have 175 grains in the front. So I've got 20% more FOC than I do with an axis with 50 grains of brass in the front. But the overall weight of my arrow is actually be- better. It's a little bit lighter than but if I put a lighted knock in there, it's actually the same weight. So I can shoot a lighted mm-hmm. knock, 75 grains of brass in the front, and a 100-grain head on one of these Sonic KEs. And I've got a 500-grain arrow that has just awesome grouping and downrange characteristics. Now, saying all that, I'm going to shoot that arrow at tack events. So right now for my tack bow... I'm shooting, because I'm shooting lower poundage on my tack bow, I'm only shooting, you know, low 60s for poundage. I actually Mm -hmm. went to the 300 spine uh, because I knew I was either going to shoot 75 or 50 grains in the front of that so that I can still shoot 110 or 120-yard shots for tack events. So today I actually took... Um, the setup that I'm going with was actually um, 50 grains in the front and the 100 grain head. The best grouping one I had was 150 grains total in the in the front of this particular arrow. But when I shot it with the 75 grains on this particular arrow, um, the grouping was about the same, but the drop difference in mm-hmm. 25 grains. So my tacker I'm going to use is actually 435 grains. The the other option, if I loaded the front of that arrow up more for for more of an extreme FOC, it was a 460 grain arrow. The way this was built, the drop difference at 100 yards is 10 and a half inches. Yeah, about that That is two yards. That's a lot. That's two <laughs> That's yards. A bunch, yeah. Two yards. Yeah, it is. So when people yeah. say like, "Well, how do I get more distance out of your, out of my bow?" Well, if you're only going to go by, um, you know, this momentum chart of what should be accurate, and you're out there with a 600 grain arrow, well, guess what? Yeah, you're not. Yards. You're not. <laughs> That's and, it. And you know what? You know, you know what's crazier, Mike? Sorry to I'm going on a rant here, but I had like oh, go, I'd, go, I'd, I'd looked at some of this stuff and it was like baffling to me. So another thing that I saw in one of these forums was someone made someone made a statement showing their pin gaps with an extreme FOC arrow, and they showed that their pin gaps stay closer together, and their pin gaps actually like did what most pin gaps do from like 20 to to 50 and then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden like the 50 to 60 wasn't bigger and then the 60 to 70 was the same size as the 50 to 60 and the bottom line is those pins are not accurate people like exactly it's it's, again you're defying laws of physics that heavy arrow is going to drop off sooner so you know i mean it's going to fall the further it gets out at a faster rate this yeah. physics. That's the way yeah. things work. Yeah, it'll it, it will retain energy, but it doesn't gain energy. It doesn't start mm. to get a 
a gas pedal on it. You know, it, it's, it is like, it is falling from the sky, you know, and, and at a faster rate. So one of the things I want to do is I'm actually going to, I'm going to take one of my bows and I'm just going to build a, you know, a perfectly spine match. I'm going to, I'm going to make everything the same. I'm just going to load the front of it different to where I can have a 500 grain arrow, a 600 grain arrow and a 700 grain arrow. And just to be able to show that, you know, like I have the biggest morel target you can get. And if I go mm-hmm. from like a 500 grain arrow to a 700 grain arrow, I don't think I'll even hit that bale if I kept my sight set at 100 yards with the 500 grain arrow. No, no way you're going to keep it in that because I've got the <laughs> same ones. What are they, four and a half feet tall or something? You ain't going to stay in that target. Your, your 700 grain is going to hit in the dirt. I'll just predict that right yeah, now. And I think, I, think, <laughs> I think what would be cool is to show... Okay, if I'm at 100 yards with an arrow that's sighted in that I feel is adequate, it might, it's not extreme, but it's adequate, and I shoot it, you know, and honestly, I'll just go to 70 yards. And then mm-hmm. with my sight set on 70, I'm going to take two steps back to 72 yards and make that same shot. And honestly, I'm going to guess it's probably going to be about 10 inches low. If I do that with an arrow that's 100 grains heavier... Like people, yeah, this is this is a matter yeah. of it's not a matter of arguing penetration. It's a matter of arguing whether or not you're even still making a an ethical shot because yeah, exactly because you're not. And and I hey, if you're out there saying I never will take a shot unless my sight perfectly matches what my rangefinder says. Hey, that's great too. I just know as a bow hunter, the amount of opportunities you're going to have is substantially going to be less if you have to. Oh, it's going to drop. If you've got a range set and wait for that animal to totally be stopped, like that just gets to be impossible in a hunting situation. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to have a whole lot of viewing time and very little shooting time. Because <laughs> it's just not going to happen that often. I mean, being a bow hunter my entire life, and same with you, you know that you know you can dream about the situation and, oh, man, he's going to come right here and he's going to stop right there and he's going to be 30 yards or 20. or You can dream about it all day long. It ain't going to happen that way very often. You know, one time out of 100, maybe it's going to happen just like you think it's going to. It's always something, seems like, you know. Right. So... Uh, but, you know, this whole deal, I mean, I, I follow Joel Maxfield on Facebook, and, I mean, he's just on test after test after test blowing this stuff out of the water <clears throat> over and over and over. And, you know, but it all comes back to <clears throat> it's just physics, man. <clears throat> and I'm about to lose my voice, unfortunately, here. But <clears throat> Sorry. Um, but, you know, <clears throat> if you're defying the laws of physics, it's not going to work. <laughs> just, yeah. you know, and that's what archery is. It's, it's <clears throat> anything that, that, is consistent with the laws of physics you can pretty much count on this going to happen and this is all we're talking about this front of center thing you know if you if you number one if if it if it restricts your ability to hit the animal in the right place i don't care if it did penetrate better you you just lost you know you didn't win anything um and the thing is is they don't penetrate any better either they really don't (laughs) you know i've killed a lot of stuff 
and with you know it, back when I was shooting tournaments, my go-to front of center was you know eleven percent between nine and eleven percent, depending on on what I was shooting. As far as you know, if I was shooting a three D tournament or a field tournament or whatever, for me on my draw length and my arrow length, that's about where it usually fell, and that's was and and I like you, I tested all the kind of things, and it always came back to for me that was pretty much where my FOC was for for accuracy, and you know my hunting arrows right now are lighter than that a little bit um you know like i said i i don't know five they're probably more than five percent they're probably seven but they're not i guarantee they're not ten you know guaranteed and but you know i also shoot the six fletch which we've talked about before i think that's another one that's in enhanced my accuracy by a lot especially you know as far as you know that arrow spinning and that's a whole nother whole nother avenue there the, the faster you make that arrow spin in my opinion the more accurate it's going to be so uh i think that that has something to do with it too but you know my setups right now and i've been shooting basically the same arrow setup you know i went from to several different brands but they're still basically the same arrow setup you know i've been shooting the same arrow set for a long time and you know I, i've tried other things i keep coming back to that just because you know it works when it hits something it's going to kill it if i put it in the right place and it gives me that ability to yeah if i'm off by three yards i'm still going to kill it doesn't matter you know um but uh you know you start getting some of this other stuff and, and you start to limit that to where you've got to be so exact and you know in, in in a hunting situation exact just don't happen that way very often you know yeah well what um so my experience with with arrow rotation my experience really comes from when i did a lot of testing back when i was doing some r&d stuff for the quick spin veins um, mm-hmm. and then at the time i did a lot of testing for norway veins which is now nor who did norway sell to um, oh they're like fusion or something yeah, exactly. or maybe so, the norway, yeah, 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 yeah. The, fusion, the fusion vein was a hundred percent me i mean that was a, a hundred i shot those i i shot the neon fusions until they quit making them <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> i those, still have some actually those so. were a hundred percent me um because yeah i wanted i wanted the vein itself but it, they couldn't stick so i kind of said is there any way we could we could fuse a, a quick you know a quick stick surface to the base of this more rigid vein to where it would work which became the reason was it was a process called fusion which is why it was called a fusion vein but what i found and this was stuff that i had done it at 90 meters and honestly this was tests that me and dave cousins did when we were shooting together you know there comes a point where if your offset or your helical is too severe once you start to get past 70 yards the deceleration starts to increase because of the rotation essentially it's drag so for me you know i i always landed on two and a half degrees for the ability to create steering and control out of the pipe but also it was my it was kind of my common ground of what still retained speed down range and you know you can do this testing at 100 yards with different offsets to see how much that deceleration starts to slow down and i remember i remember uh Dwayne price showed up to like the first one of his first FIDA events and he had some like 
seriously wrapped arrows that were like freaking spinning like darts, which he which was awesome for three D. But but what happened was it was they were just spinning so hard that downrange they just you know they start to to kind of balloon out just because they're decelerating so you know much faster from that so th- there is like you know extreme yeah, is a good word about, because extreme yeah, starts to starts to be yeah. too much of anything of anything yeah you're right exactly and i don't disagree with you i mean you know when i'm talking about my six fletch i'm talking about a hunting arrow <clears throat> and the reason i started doing that was because they are so much quieter in flight oh, that yeah. was the problem that i addressed originally was you know i was shooting four basically four blazer veins um and everything that i was shooting i actually i actually have video of a, of a mule deer buckling on his on his belly watching my arrow go over its back at 50 yards and that was that when i looked at that it's like you know what i have got to do something different so and i know i've told this story on the podcast before but you know i just ended up taking my my shotgun mic on my video camera putting it down range and fletching everything in the world i could think of to shoot over it and lo and behold the six fletch was much quieter than anything else out there and that was the reason i started doing that and there's no doubt there's deceleration down down range no doubt um but for me in a hunting situation having that quiet flight is it kind of trumps that plus you know i've I've been able to on my really long range stuff because I shoot all the way out to 80 with my just my fixed pins go to 80 and then I use my 80 as a rover um, but you know my fixed pins aren't extreme gapped or anything like that out to 80 they're just about like you would expect them to be but uh, you know on my on my uh, further stuff out I had to build I build a custom tape you know that I can set my long yardage stuff on and and I just use the archer advantage system and I actually put in just four just four uh three inch veins which is actually two less than i actually have on my on my bow and it's dead on out all the way to 135 so as far as i'm concerned i really don't care about the deceleration that much as far as what i'm using it for if i were going to go out and shoot feta i probably wouldn't shoot six flash you know i probably yeah, wouldn't so yeah. you know because it doesn't sharon make does. you know that's you know sharon does but she i also um so with sharon she shoots a six fletch but she shoots a pro max vein um, mm-hmm. So it's only two inches. And the reason right. I do that is because on a lot of, like, short draw bows, they normally come with shorter brace heights. So when your mm-hmm. arrow rest is in the up position or, like, on an, on an elevate, when you have the flipper up holding the arrow, when, when they have these little short brace heights because of these, you know, micro draw bows – the veins end up being through the front launchers yeah. when it's in the ump position. So for me, by going to six of the Pro Max, the total surface area is still equal to three uh, Max veins. Um, right. So I'm pretty much just like using the same numbers. I'm just dividing them differently and, and applying them yeah. differently. 
Yeah, you still have the same amount of air hitting the veins. It's just it's just it's hitting them in a shorter shorter duration. But it would be interesting to know. I'll bet you that in flight those arrows are silent because that's the oh, big yeah, thing, man. Yeah, I mean, it's just it, the the difference between the arrows in flight. Actually, you know, when you when you actually you know are downrange and you actually understand what that arrow sounds like when it's coming and when it goes past you. Mostly when it's coming because when it's past it doesn't matter, right? But you know if that thing's if that thing's whistling and making all kinds of racket on the way down, that animal's going to react to that. And you know, having videoed hundreds and hundreds of animals being shot yeah. down, I know you have too. You know, they don't stand and take it very often. But since I started doing this, I mean, it has cut the the amount of of you know animals moving before the arrow hits them dramatically. It really has. Well, that's why I shoot six flush. But it's also, like I said, it, it does control my fixed blade heads. You know, I can put basically any six foot, any, any head six blade head, or any any head <laughs> yeah. I want, as long as it's straight. As long as it's straight, I can put just about anything on, and, and it'll shoot with my field points. So, but there's like everything. There's a there's a downside to it, and the downside is that you know it, it's definitely going to decelerate at long range quicker. But, yeah, it uh, will. It'll a, a six fletch downrange will definitely need a bigger sight tape than a four fletch. Have you ever seen our our custom made arrows have you ever seen them i'm actually um, i don't know that i have actually i've never talked about it enough which um i actually just did a video because there's a lot of people that that order our hand fletched arrows but they really Mm -hmm. don't know how freaking good they are so Mm -hmm. so our hand fletched arrows one, they're all fletched by ha- they're all fletched by hand, and they're not fletched on a a jig that's on a wheel. That mm-hmm. like they all are the same jig. Yeah, they are literally. We have we have three jigs that every single one are made on, and normally those batches we know which of the jigs depending on the batches when they were made. But to like go back, our our axis shafts, the knock-on match-grade axis shafts, they're inside of a thousandth. And, and even better than that, like, and I don't think people realize, for me to get this done, we're talking, like, the order amount that we have to put in is is monstrous. It's a huge investment. But for, you know, every single knock-on axis match grade, and for that matter, our FMJs too, um, that batch starts with with brand new spools of carbon that get loaded onto the onto the carbon machines. So, and 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 we don't allow spools to be like changed out in the middle of the process so once that process starts they're all pulled through a die that's inside of a thousandth and and more importantly than that our spools of carbon they're those things are 3.1 miles long so every eastern axis knock on batch it's literally three miles of the same arrow that's cut every 33 inches. No, no. I mean, it is. So they're all the same. They're they're actually literally matched. They're matched. <laughs> they're 100 percent yep. matched. And then you know they're 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 inside of they're inside of you know they're inside of a grain, 
And then they're they're all you know they're all fletched that same way. And here's what's awesome: if you if someone orders one of our pre-fletched like one of our jigs, we take every jig out of a box and we actually set it up. And we set it up to a die that is the same die that's that our hand fletched, our three hand fletched are mirrored to, mm-hmm. and they're checked. So I mean, I've never. I've never personally had better arrows than those. Like, and and yeah. people say, "Well, would you trust? Would you trust your employees for your arrows?" And I'm like, "Do you think I build my own arrows?" Like, <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm not saying that because I have employees doing it. I'm saying it because, like, when you had winner's choice, would you go make your own string, or do you know that that not person? In the world. Yeah, that person in there is doing it a hundred times a week more than you've done it that week. So, oh, yeah. so it's yeah. like yeah, no you know, it's a, it's a diminishing <laughs> skill. Like some of those some of those things, like how to fletch an arrow, th- those are diminishing skills. Or building a string to where yeah, if I sat there and I I reminded myself and I built a few strings. By the third one, I'm going to build the one I want. But it would take me a while to remember. But when you have people that are following a protocol that is so freaking perfect, yeah, they're doing well, it the other better part than of that, I can do it. Exactly. The other part of that, I mean, like I said, the string analogy is perfect. When I had winner's choice, I didn't go out and, and have my what I considered my best string builder build my string. I put it in the order process and went through it just like everybody else's. And the reason I did that, number one, I had full faith in my crew and they did a great job. But the other thing is, if I wouldn't shoot it, I don't expect my customers to shoot it. Yep. So it's the same exact thing, you know. Um, yeah, why would you go out and do something different than you you're, than you would tell everybody else to do? You know, I mean that that's kind of counterproductive, and you don't have much faith in your crew if that's the case. And plus, again, yes, they're going to do it a lot better than you anyway. <laughs> so, but. Well, I'm going to... Yeah, that's how I did it forever. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to get out and try to get a little bit of shooting here before the evening's over. I've got two days before TAC Oklahoma already. Um, but dang, dude, we can... We can talk archery till the sun goes down. I feel like it. Oh, no, I know it, 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 it. Yeah, I know my voice is about to give up on it just as it is. But uh, always fun. I love talking archery and and hunting and all that stuff. Uh, you know, hopefully, you know, people out there learn a little bit. And uh, you know, we've been doing it a long time. There's a lot of experience, and uh, experience will this experience will definitely pay off. There's no doubt. And you know, the only way to get experience is there's only two ways. Number one, to listen to experienced people, and number two to go out there and, and prove it to yourself. So yeah. hopefully that's what people are doing. Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. I appreciate it. And uh, for all <laughs> you listening, uh, thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to check out knockonarchery.com for our full line of custom-designed products as well as free in-depth education and bow hunting entertainment to help you shoot at your best.